Welcome to this episode of Mission Business, a podcast about good business for those in the business of good, presented by your part-time controller, LLC, also known as YPTC. My name is Jennifer Oliva, the host of Mission Business and managing partner at YPTC. In this episode, I spoke with Anne-Marie Gray, CEO and Executive Director of USA for UNHCR, the refugee agency. Anne-Marie brings more than 30 years of fundraising and marketing experience, both in the United States and internationally, to USA for UNHCR. Appointed in 2014 to lead the organization and enhance its programs and resources, Anne-Marie is committed to mobilizing efforts in support of the 82.4 million men, women, and children that have been forced to flee their homes around the world. We cover USA for UNHCR's mission, how that mission is achieved through its programs, and how Amory grew it from a $3 million to a $96 million organization. And now my conversation with Anne-Marie Gray. Welcome to the Mission Business Podcast. So glad that you are here. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a delight to be here. Really is. Emory, you've had such an impressive career. Uh, what was your journey into the nonprofit sector? At least in my case, I didn't wake up at college and go, wow, I'm just dying to work in the nonprofit sector. I'd actually done my first degrees in um, art history, and I aspired to work in a museum. By its very nature, that is nonprofit. But I kind of saw myself on the other side of it, not the administration or the business side, but more on the creative side. And I ended up working for the Australian National Gallery, uh, now the National Gallery of Australia. I kind of started in the curatorial side and I there was a better job. I was always kind of, how can I make more money? <laughs> um, there was a better job working in the publication section. So I kind of transitioned over to that job, which led me into fundraising for the organization, running the marketing for the publications and the uh, the products that they produce for major blockbuster exhibitions. And then I ended up working in the area of sponsorship, securing financial support from private sector companies for many of the major exhibitions and touring exhibitions for the National Gallery. My career then moved over to the National Museum of Australia, where I also worked on public programs, project managing exhibitions, Always have had my hand in the sponsorship side, that intersection between uh, corporations, foundations, and nonprofits. So it was kind of a uh, a loop, not not necessarily a straight line. And that is something that's kind of common to my career and the career choices that I've made. Yeah, I kind of tend to take sideways jobs. <laughs> I have so many questions now. Um, curious yeah. about Australia. Uh, were you yep. born there? No, my dad was a diplomat with the Department of State. And when I was 13, we were posted. I'd had postings before that, my, my family had. But when I was 13, I moved to Australia for three years. I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with the country. I did my three years of high school there. We were then posted back to the States. And I don't think I talked to my parents for the next five years. I just was so angry about having to move back. But I ended up going to Colby College in Waterville, Maine. I ended up transferring back to Australia to the Australian National University 
my junior year. And I kind of had to restart my college education because they only accepted a handful of credits. What what did Um, you study? It was art history, but I had gone to Australia originally to study Aboriginal anthropology. I I always loved that intersection between culture and art. I was fascinated by history. And for me, the visual arts were a way of seeing into history. So I loved that creative side. And my work in the National Museum and the National Gallery really played uh, into that creative side. But I got to a point where I decided, you know, art is a business, the business of art. I kind of transferred over to the administration side and kind of worked always on this resource mobilization component and marketing. I also had a background in project management, so I could build exhibitions. I decided I wanted to bring my family back to the U.S. I had two children by that time, and we thought we'd come over for three years. We moved to Washington, D.C. I had a choice between a job project managing the refurbishment of the Gem Hall at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History or working for Billy Shore's group Share Our Strength. And I chose to do the Share Our Strength job, leading the fundraising. And it was an absolutely fabulous experience before being uh, headhunted to UNICEF USA. And from there, I really began my UN career or my career working near the UN in support of UNICEF. Then I did some time with Save the Children, then UNHCR. And that landed me in the job as CEO of the U.S. Association for UNHCR known as you for you. <laughs> well, it is, yeah. uh, that's such an incredible ride. You know what, it's interesting for those people that have different you know, backgrounds in liberal arts or the arts and then come yeah. into a nonprofit and become yeah. part of the business side of it. How did you learn the business side of nonprofits? Well, I think some of it was direct experience. Um, I was lucky to work with some absolutely fantastic managers. Most of them had a similar career trajectory as me. They had come from either studying the arts or being liberal arts students. So I learned a lot of it hands-on. I did a lot of professional development, a lot of executive education courses. I'm a continuous learner. I am constantly reading Maybe that says something about my self-confidence, but I was like, how can you be better? Um, I mean, it may have been the first time I I still go back to the 60-minute manager, the Ken Blanchard books. I think it was like the first one that I I ever read and I just got hooked. So I think it was a combination of a lot of coursework. I've been blessed to work for organizations that invested in professional development for their staff. So project management was something when we were building the National Museum of Australia, Margaret Coldrake, our director, put us all through the entire organization through the same project management course. She's like, you're either leading a project or you're part of a project team and we need a common language. And, you know, I've got to say it was a game changer for me. It's really established how I've looked at professional development for my staff. I just think we have to invest in our people. And I think it's a shared responsibility between a staff member and the organization. We don't own it all. I'm always looking for people that are hungry to uh, to learn more. And it's it's certainly a value that's very important to me. Look, I'll be very honest. I don't come with a financial background. I can read a financial statement. Um, I'm really good with numbers when they have dollar signs in front of them. But other than that, I never really paid a lot of attention. <laughs> and I think that's where you have the opportunity to hire really brilliant people. Uh, or brilliant support services. So finance is not my strong suit. I I know that, 
I recognize that. And that's where, you know, I've, I've hired great people or great organizations to assist our organization to grow to the next levels. We wouldn't have experienced the growth we've had if we hadn't partnered very, very early on with your organization. Well, I'm so um, grateful for, for you <laughs> saying that and, and I'm proud of the work that we've done with you. Well, let's first start with the mission of USA for you and HCR, you for you. Our job is to provide opportunity and hope for resettled refugees in this country uh, and to promote the refugee cause in the United States. And we, we do that in a number of ways. A lot of people don't realize that refugees are people that are forced to flee. This is not economic migration or people that say, hey, I just want a better life. These are people that are actually being persecuted either because religious beliefs, uh, sexual orientation, political stance, uh, conflict. So in many ways, these are, I think, some of the most vulnerable people that are often forced to flee their countries with very, very little notice. They often come just with the clothes on their back and a little bit of documentation. They have no choice. They have to flee. You know, our job is to provide life-saving assistance, to provide durable solutions in the form of education, livelihoods training, and really to ensure protection that their legal rights are met in the countries that host them or where they ultimately resettle. You know, most refugees, all they want is to go home. And for the vast majority, that isn't an option. The reality is most will end up settling uh, or being assimilated into a host country. And it's under 1% that are actually resettled in countries such as the U.S. or in continents such as Europe and Australia. What's the status of the refugee crisis here uh, now? When I started with the organization almost 12 years ago, um, the refugee numbers were under 40 million or people of concern. So refugees and people of concern, and that includes people that might not have any citizenship or those that are forced to flee inside their own countries, but they haven't crossed a border, so they're not deemed to be asylum seekers or refugees. So the number was under 40 million. And in June this year, we uh, announced in the, um, in the Global Trends Report a new figure of over 100 million people of concern. That's largely due to situations such as the Ukraine, to Venezuela, to Syria, to ongoing conflict uh, on the African continent, as well as the situation of the Rohingya uh, that have fled Myanmar uh, and are largely being hosted in Bangladesh. So the conflicts, the number of conflicts we see, we're, we responded to over, over 23 emergencies last year, and we're not seeing the trend reverse. So unfortunately, our job is to provide their you know, legal protection, ensure their, their rights are being met, as well as life-saving assistance. You know, the job of getting in there to what are the causes? How do you, how do you get to the root cause of what's causing mass migration uh, is really the remit of the governments. Uh, our job is just to provide the humanitarian assistance and protection. You're protecting humans. You're protecting human life and uh, hopefully making a gigantic difference in the lives of those that you serve. So thank, thank you, you for that. And uh, honestly, very grateful that we, uh, your part-time controllers, accountants, this is, yeah. we get to kind of be part of that mission. And it's, it, it's very, um, very meaningful to me. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mission Business Podcast. My name is Carol Melvin, and I'm a senior manager and leader in YPTC's Washington, D.C. office. YPTC is currently hiring nationwide. We offer a flexible work environment, 35-hour standard work week, perks and incentives, full benefits, as well as full and part-time positions to fit your needs. The best part? You can use your accounting skills for good and directly impact the success of amazing nonprofit organizations. At YPTC, we know that a career is not one size fits all. We are dedicated to a workplace guided by trust, support, education, integrity, equity, community, and strong relationships. YPTC is consistently recognized for its strong and employee-focused culture. Most recently, we appeared on Inc. Magazine's Best Places to Work list and ranked second in Accounting Today's Best Accounting Firms to Work For. So what's next? Are you ready to love your job? Apply today on YPTC.com or contact careers at YPTC.com. We can't wait to meet you. I guess the growth for you as an organization has had to follow that crisis and be able to serve the growth of refugees. So tell me about that and how you did that. When I started, USA for UNHCR was raising around $3 million. And it was founded in 1989 with the objective of advocating for UNHCR, not as a fundraising organization. And the organization wanted to change. It was really invested in only one means of fundraising, and that was what we call face-to-face fundraising. And it was kind of set up with only that purpose in mind. And my job was to grow this to be, at that time, we aspired to be a $75 million organization. And as you pointed out, our growth has been tremendous, you know, with the support of the American public, with the support of American corporations and foundations. This year, we will close our books at almost 200, over $200 million. We planned for the growth. We invested in infrastructure. We invested in public awareness and content gathering and really providing a platform by which resettled refugees in the United States didn't speak about need, but really spoke about the agency they had in their own destiny their contributions to the American community. We anchored our storytelling in really creating a platform by which resettled refugees could tell their own stories and that these are stories of hope and dignity. And we try to be a unique voice in what's a competitive fundraising market. But we've invested in our infrastructure from the beginning. But the unfortunate side is when we've had, you know, it's, it, it's because We have had more emergencies, more emergencies such as the 2015 with that picture that went around the world on every newspaper of small three-year-old Alan Kurdi, who had died um, while his family tried to flee from Turkey to Greece, you know, washed up, his body washed up on a beach. We had a tremendous outpouring of of support for what we call the European Migration crisis. We've had tremendous support for the Syrian crisis, and we've had just remarkable support for the Ukrainian crisis. When these crises are in the news, you know, and it's it's bad news. You know, the reality is Americans are very generous people and donate. But our growth 
often comes around these emergencies. You know, unfortunately, we have a lot of silent emergencies, a lot of places where the news cameras aren't showing up, such as Yemen, such as Bangladesh, South Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia. So the needs are tremendous, but it kind of comes with this bittersweet thing. You can be so proud of your organization and what you've we've built together and the support that we've been able to generate. But at the same time, these numbers are huge, but you know, behind every number, these big numbers are individuals that, you know, forced to play and endure horrible circumstances. It, that growth is bittersweet. I see that. I, I certainly see that. Yeah. And thinking about what you said before about setting a vision, I'm curious how that has evolved over time. And then I'm also wondering about how you did build that infrastructure and your leadership team. And what are the things that you focused on the most to take your initial vision or the growth of that vision to where you are today? Yeah. So by vision statement or mission statement, this was a personal statement that I really thrashed through. It was about four or five pages. I actually found my original one when I was back in my DC office this week, and I made uh, seven copies, which I'm going to hand out to my executive leadership team just to remind them how far we've come. And um, it was really quite remarkable because we've surpassed everything. And you know what I did is I shared that with the board of the organization. And I had to build the board out. There were only three interim board members when I arrived. So one of the first jobs at hand was to build a board and to do that very deliberately, really determining what are the skill sets we need, what's the kind of representation we need. And I used that that vision paper uh, to help me recruiting the board, you know, along with a case for service on why somebody should want to serve as a board member, what our expectations were. And I'm a big believer in job descriptions for board positions and board members. And I went through a very deliberate process to slowly bring on and expand the board around two to three board members at a time. And we now have 17 board members at the organization. Um, I looked to the bylaws to see what needed to be updated. And then, you know, at the same time, we're scanning internally on what needed to be done. We did enjoy and do enjoy some investment funds from UNHCR for very specific fundraising activities. Within a week of me taking the job, those funds were cut. So my first job was actually going around the country and shutting down five chapters where we had face-to-face fundraising, and then working with a wonderful regional manager, Anu Sarandran, who now heads up um, the USA for UNFPA. She really assisted us, and in, in, in together we put our heads together to really build out a mail program. So we look to diversify our fundraising, yet you know, UNHCR, I'll be frank, they, they were not interested in, in supporting building up infrastructure. So I really had to look at what did I have within the organization and what were what were we going to need to build up? Clearly, the financial component was one of the first areas I looked at. We were operating off QuickBooks. QuickBooks was not going to work for us if we aspired to be a $75 million organization in the next five years. 
So we had to start to make some changes in our systems, how we were going to onboard that. I had to have backup plans in case staff chose not to stay with us or we needed to make staff changes. At every step of the way, I sought advice from your part-time controller and from my board on how to move forward. So I've got to say, really sharing that vision with the board was essential. Sharing that vision with staff was essential as we built the organization up. And then it was just, you know, as most nonprofits, it doesn't matter how big you are, we always start the year with zero. You have to make strategic investments and really prioritize what can we spend money on? What are the hires that we need to make? What are the systems we need to build out? So I invested in HR. I invested in finance. We invested in tech support. We hired excellent fundraisers. And I found as we've grown, the skill sets we need have also grown. And our ability to attract more experienced staff with a broader range of um, experience has also grown. So, you know, it's an evolving process. I think it's so important uh, to invest in your infrastructure. Many nonprofits um, either aren't able or don't have that vision to do so, and then um, aren't able to um, provide their programs as uh, well as they could uh, because they don't have that. You said a really good thing, which is, you know, nonprofits feel they can't afford it. What we did is we took a lot, we always play a long-term game. We weren't looking at what we needed for this year or in a 12-month period, but being willing to take the investments early on that build the infrastructure you need to be what you aspire to be. We knew QuickBooks from the beginning, we would have to make a shift. It was a question of then figuring out how do we make that shift and what systems should we be moving to and timing it. And in a smaller organization, and we're about 60 people now, you know, we also went through, we had five different databases. We needed to migrate to one. And while we've done the data migration, our donor database system is now Salesforce. We now need to integrate Salesforce with our financial system. So these were big investments and they are investments you have to plan for in advance. And you have to also know when you're building infrastructure that requires you to engage your whole organization. You know, one of the things as a leader I find is I am so ambitious. I want to do everything and I want to do it yesterday. You've got to bring the organization with you. So staging how you do this stuff, as frustrating as that can be for me personally, you've got to bring the, the stakeholders with you. So you've got to plan in advance. And speaking of stakeholders, did you have any funders or outside partners to help you uh, fund the infrastructure growth? Mainly from our donations and any earned revenue that we might have. Um, I wish, I wish there were more funders that recognize if you want strong, a strong nonprofit sector, you need to give unrestricted and you need to invest in infrastructure building, professional development, HR financial systems, but uh, to date, no. And if anyone's out there that wants to do that, call me immediately. And you talk about training and development of your staff and, and of yourself as a, a young person coming up through the nonprofit sector. And you know that that's very important with training. But how do you find uh, the people that you are hiring today uh, and make sure that they're a good fit for the organization? 
So we are real advocates in our organization. We use DISC, the DISC assessments a lot, not for recruiting people, but for really understanding our own styles and how we work together. Um, we do a lot of competency-based uh, questioning during our um, our interview process. For us, it's really important that people are committed to the mission, that they believe in the refugee cause, but also it's equally important that they're fit for our organizational culture. Uh, so we do a lot of questioning around values, uh, how they might handle certain situations, really digging into their management style because we're finding management is is tough these days. We are a young organization that have a lot of experts, but those experts in a particular fundraising channel or communications expertise or whatever expertise they bring doesn't mean they were necessarily have a lot of management experience. So we're finding, again, we need to invest in that and train, as well as, of course, recruiting for diversity, um, always from from the board down to uh, through to our staff. We're, we have now developed a new internship program that we hope to launch in June specifically to address DEI or what we see as inequalities in our profession um, for for people of color, uh, but also as an employment opportunity for resettled refugees. So we're looking at developing a a three year. You'd come in as a cohort, perhaps between your your sophomore and junior year in college for a paid internship as a cohort. If you've done well, you'd be invited back the next year for another paid uh, kind of tougher <laughs> uh, internship opportunity. And the idea is by year three, at the end of that, you'd be offered either an entry-level job within the organization or we'd assist in finding you a job. But we're really committed to this. It's really important that you get the right people on the bus. And as you're talking about all of the um, your culture building, what are you doing with uh, coaching CEOs? Well, I'm actually leaving my position. I've been just over eight years at USA for UNHCR. And a year ago, more than a year ago, I sat down with the chair and said, you know, I think I, I've taken this organization, not anticipating the year we've had with Ukraine, but I said, I think I have now fulfilled what I had set out to do. And I'm definitely somebody that loves to lead startup and turnaround. And I think now the organization is at a place that it will benefit from a different kind of leader. So we had a secession plan in place and I sat down with the chair and I said, I think it's time. For me, uh, I had been working. Um, I'll go back to consulting. I'll go back to, I've been getting my coaching certification as an executive coach with ICF and uh, Coactive Training. And so uh, part of that certification process was working with um, real clients. It's not just book learning. You have to go out and do it. So I've been very lucky through my network. I'm currently coaching 10. They all happen to be women. Seven of them are CEOs of um, leading international humanitarian organizations. Um, some are C-suite within corporations. And uh, that will be my, uh, that's what I'll be focusing on in 2023 when I exit. Tell me about the development of your succession plan. Sure. So um, I sat down, uh, really did what I normally do, which is I started Googling and going to the library and saying, okay, I knew I'd need one. And we actually wrote the secession plan 
I would say around year three, not because I anticipated or wanted to exit, um, but because, you know, when I look at the checklists of, do you have these things in place? A good organization, a good nonprofit will have this in place. Like an emergency fundraising plan, you can't write that when you're in the middle of an emergency. You can't write a secession plan when you're, when you're exiting. So you need to be prepared. Your board needs to be prepared and the organization needs to know what that's going to look like. So uh, we crafted a two or three page secession plan that was 12 months out. I'm still wondering if that was too long because it is difficult to keep staff engaged if when you make that long announcement. But our plan was a 12 month out announcement to the board. I also announced to uh, my senior team and the organization as a whole. And we had the communications in place for what that would look like. It kind of said the steps, what that would look like. It listed a range of executive search firms that could be consulted or brought on to assist with the search that, you know, outlined how a search committee would come together. So it was basically the how-to, the who's, who are you going to have to tap into? And then like everything else, a really sound internal and external communication strategy. So I'm glad we had the document and I think it's, it's part of infrastructure building. Um, you should have secession plans in place, not only for the CEO role, um, certainly have them in place for your, for your board and your board chair. Um, but you also need them in place, I would suggest, for, for senior staff and your top managers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyone that has major decision-making um, responsibility in the organization, uh, you should have a plan uh, for succession. You know, I have been privileged to work not only with your part-time controller, but others that have been able to pinch hit. You know, if you lose a senior uh, staff member or a critical staff member, in in a you know in a, a staff member in a critical role because all staff members are critical, um, you need to have some provisions in place for bringing in interim support. I have used that. I've had to go to a Plan B a few times, and uh, it's really important to to stay connected, to stay networked, and to find out who can offer those kinds of interim services should you require it. So, um, when is your the planned retirement date and how close are we? January 31st. We have announced our new CEO. We announced that last week with our senior team. And um, it's Suzanne Ellers who will be joining us from who has been this, who's the CEO of the Malala Fund. So I think this is an absolutely fantastic appointment for the organization. And, um, you know, now my role is onboarding. It has been transitioned for the last 12 months, and now it's preparing the organization for uh, that transition and preparing my senior team to lead her through the onboarding. Well, it sounds like a fantastic selection and uh, couldn't have been done better uh, as far as a transition, the handoff uh, from a great leader like you. I'm so looking forward uh, to your next chapter. Well, thank you for that. I think the, the first thing I'm going to do, though, is a little self-care, which all leaders should do. And, you know, other than I, I do my yin yoga class, I've got my Peloton, but what I'm really looking forward to is a, a beach vacation back in Australia for a couple of months. I can't wait. <laughs> you deserve it. 
Uh, I wish you uh, all the best in your retirement. I would love to stay in touch uh, as women leaders. We absolutely need to have a network of support. And uh, you, for sure, uh, would be one of those people I'd love to turn to someday for advice and counsel. Well, I'm just glad we could have a really deep conversation today. I really enjoyed this and, and thank you so much. That was my conversation with Anne-Marie Gray, CEO and Executive Director of USA for UNHCR, the Refugee Agency. Up next, we hear from YPTC's own Geraldine Dressler and YPTC manager Kasha Havati in our Ask the Controller segment. Kasha has worked with USA for UNHCR for a number of years and has been part of the YPTC team that has helped Anne-Marie and her staff through the tremendous transitions and growth you just heard about. Hello and welcome to Ask the Controller. I am your host, Geraldine Dressler, and a big welcome to our guest today, Kasha Lavati. Kasha, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Geraldine. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. So let's get into it. USA for UNHCR has been on a remarkable growth trajectory under Anne-Marie's leadership. What did you and the YPTC team do in particular to help Anne-Marie use the financials to inform her decision-making? The relationship between USA for UNHCR and YPTC started seven years ago when Anne-Marie engaged us for the assessment of the finance team. As the organization grew, uh, we were able to provide an arm's length of the finance team by conducting additional assessments in later years, evaluating accounting department uh, staffing needs, policies and procedures, and uh, making recommendations how to eliminate redundancies and increase efficiencies to help build that best equipped, agile, and highly responsive accounting and finance infrastructure to support the growth of USA for UNHCR. And so by building YPTC associates to the USA for UNHCR, we quickly became a critical part of the team by providing that backup support and then being able to stabilize the department in times of rapid growth and change. And because of the institutional knowledge that YPTC staff had, we were able to assist with management and staff onboarding while at the same time making sure that all transactions were recorded on time, reports were accurate and timely, and the organization stayed in compliance with rules and regulations. So by providing that historical context, during the system conversions, we've been a thought partner, not just to the finance team, but to other teams within the organization as well. That's great. And it's really a testament to Anne-Marie's leadership that she made sure that the infrastructure was in place to help facilitate that growth. And it's great that you were part of that. In your time working with USA from UNHCR, what has surprised you the most or what have you been most impressed with? I've been impressed with how the looking ahead, which Anne-Marie uh, discussed when talking about hiring great people to us, assist the organization to grow to the next level, how this looking ahead proved critical 
earlier this year during the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ramping up, to be able to ramping up the operation in, to be able to process such outpouring of donations in such a short period of time would not have been possible without the investment in the infrastructure, the systems in place, the right people, and the YPTC involvement in that infrastructure building. So it's very meaningful to me also on a personal level, as I feel that by being a YPTC employee, uh, we helped further the USA for UNHCR mission. That's fantastic to hear. And I think that any donor would be impressed to know how well their funds were being managed on the back end. So thank you for all your work with that. And thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mission Business Podcast. We look forward to bringing you more stories of innovation and perseverance from nonprofits around the world. I want to thank the team at PWP Video for their guidance and assistance in the development and production of this podcast. They are a great partner for Media with a Mission, and you can find them at pwpvideo.com. Additional information about this episode can be found at missionbusinesspod.com. And follow us on social media at Mission Business Pod on Instagram and Facebook and Mission Biz Pod on Twitter. I want to thank our guest, Anne-Marie Gray, CEO and Executive Director of USA for UNHCR, the Refugee Agency. To learn more about UNHCR, visit unhcr.org. This podcast was produced by Erica Blair and Geraldine Dressler of Your Part-Time Controller, LLC. Dave Winston and Michael Schweizheimer are our producers from PWP Video. And the show was directed and edited by Pat Ganley. Again, I'm Jennifer Oliva, and we'll see you here next time on Mission Business, presented by Your Part-Time Controller, LLC.